All right, Chris, start us off. Oh, boy. So excited to talk first about this. This movie. Well, first Man. of all, you and, you and Paul uh, are seeing this for the first time. And yep. you've seen uh, and you've both expressed to me the interest in this film for a while now. Yep. Um, so I just wanted to preface with that. So go ahead. And, and I'll keep it short and sweet because we're gonna we're gonna talk about this film to death. So I just I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna share my ranking. Uh, a well deserved. Hey, Chris. First, start off with the master. Yes. I'm going to pass it to Paul. Paul. Uh, Chris, great uh, suggestion that we just keep it short and simple. There's, there's no need yeah, for right. everybody to listen to me. I've already put it in. My hands are now moving to the swift pulling button. And we're just going to put it up there. Eight, 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 eight,
So, uh, I'm going to screen share real quick. Sure. I'm the host. I'm the fucking host now. I'm the host now. Okay, can you guys see that? Yeah. Uh, That is our third top film. Wow, right behind uh, another bingy bingy with prize whispers. Ooh, ooh, Angie, bingy. I think that 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 actually makes the right sense. It's it's just it's it's not quite prize and whispers. It is not. It is not a unanimous though. So our, our new top five is the master by Paul Thomas Anderson, Prize Whispers by Inge Bingy, City Lights by Charlie Chaplin, um, Seven Seal by Inge Bingy, and the Cranes are flying by Mikhail Kalatozov. Yeah. I'll give it back to you, Chris. Thank you. Now. Just stop sharing. I'll take it right back. Wow. Nine point nine. I'm still jazzed on that. So this is as close to a perfect movie as you've come across, Paul. Yeah. Um, this one was. And you know what, Yoshi? I credit you and I credit everybody else. You, you said last time we all, all got together uh, uh, I did give Madame Dave the ranking I felt it deserved. I thought maybe I missed something. I was like, I was in the dark. So I actually went out and read the book, posted it on Instagram. This is a novella. It's a quick read. It takes an hour. Yes, the Los Angeles Public Library is working very well. Moving book around the city during COVID-19. Thank you, City of Los Angeles, for applying my tax dollars for my own education while I quarantine. Uh, um, the book far superior to the movie. And I just didn't, for some reason, just don't trust myself sometimes I just I wanna you know I worry about what you guys are gonna think about me and worry about my ranking and all that and I just let all, all of that go after our last session and I said and then I watched this movie and 
And the interesting thing is, my head said, why don't you do some deep digging? Because, you know, Yoshi, now, now he wants to get into the, you know, the background of movie, movie excuse me, uh, gets some contextual history that might be something cinematic or, or something just plain historical or something about, about the auteur. So I did, and I, I watched Tramalning, which is the wood painting, the play, the one-act play that the seventh seal is based on. And I said, oh, what a shame. Without seeing the movie, what a shame, because this play is so compelling, yet I'm about to see a movie with Max Van Sydow playing chess on a beach in Costa still sweet. I can't wait to fall asleep. Such was not the case. Wow. And I said, no. And I think he, without regurgitating Wikipedia for all of our you know, viewers and listeners. Are, you know, I know where you guys do. I know where you do your homework. It's like, okay, well, it's all there because it's there compactly so we can see it and at least educate ourselves and educate you along in the process. But uh, it wasn't a chess match with death. Uh, coastal suite. And this was an ensemble piece. This one, it gets such high marks for me. It was a deeply personal experience. This is one of those rare times I was riveted by what I was was watching on screen. Riveted. Riveted the, the everyone had a hand in this. Everyone from the monk, which is Anders Eck, I believe. And I've got to make sure I've got it. I give everybody there. Yes, Anders Eck, who plays the monk when the crucifixion march trumps through the the village, the passion, and I was. was blown away by his monologue. Just a moment in time. I mean, he's had a very, you know, he had 
had a lot of we'll be talking in past tense about a lot of these people. But I thought maybe our witch who died at the end was still alive, but she passed away in 2020. Um, uh, which is, which is scary, but I was absolutely, wait, wait, this wait, wait, did she die from COVID? I don't, I don't know. That's why I didn't want to, I, I think it's just, she died in yeah, 2020. But that's why was it the uh, there's not much on, on Wikipedia. Yeah. How ironic would that be? Oh if, my god. He was in a movie where the, the Black Plague was you know, in existence and then she lived to 2020 and died of COVID. Yeah. And she plays the witch. She plays the There's witch. a lot to go in about all that death, that black yeah. plague stuff. Uh, oh. Paul, I didn't mean to no, no, you. no, no. Uh, um, but, but the ensemble, because what's interesting is I again, I walked into this thinking I was going to watch this hour and a half long chess match. I thought this is the dumbest. I'm like, what? People have loved this movie. I said, oh. so you thought the whole movie was going to be him and death. <laughs> going did you do this? I did. I thought. This whole thing was going to be a basically a my dinner with Andre over a chessboard. And I said, okay. But I guess somebody said, you, you really ought to see it, Paul. This, this might appeal to you, Paul. I'm like, oh, okay, great, great. Uh, uh, and I've loved Bingy's other work, you know. Um, but this, the ensemble across the board, because what's interesting and the, the point I want to make is Max Van Sackadow is featured in his own vignette on Criterion, which you can watch. And of course, people speak glowingly about Max and his contribution to cinema. cinema me and how the camera loved him, uh, how his genius was captured at a very, very early age, as you noted at the beginning, Yoshi. Um, but, and to some degree, maybe it did diminished how I might respond to Gunnar uh, of your friend who 
plays a young the squire and some of the other characters in this piece, but they all, all filled their roles so beautifully and wonderfully. And the, the deeply personal part of me is that I was one of those kids who really wanted to like the, the Canterbury Tales uh, when I was in school. And what's funny is I never really I read it, read it in high school, and I think I understood it. But though I don't think it was necessarily said during the Crusades, I do remember as a kid my appreciation for anything medieval was really heightened one day when my father brought home history books uh, about the war of 1066 and some other you know, noteworthy chapters in English history. And I remember opening it up. My mother, <laughs> she was usually the editor in the house. So my, my father would come home with these really weird magazines and books. And usually the adult in nature. But it was kind of fun for me. And I would open I just remember this guy with a spear in his eye. And I, I said, wow. Oh, that was the Middle Ages. That was pretty cool. And then I remember at that point, my love of historical England went up a few more points. I thought, this is something I should really investigate. Now, again, and we're not set in England here, but we are dealing with the Crusades. And I think Inky Bangy came under fire for this movie. I think it was under budget, whatever. What he brings to life, what was dramatized? dialogue, the discussion that I think anyone watching this would have after viewing it, the contemplation about death, uh, some of the lines death has are extraordinary. And, and it, it really hit me on a deeply personal level. I was moved just absolutely moved. And I said it would be a disservice to you 
to enter the society for you not to bear all and rank this movie highly. I'm so wow. deeply moved. This is a 9.9 for me. Well, first of all, I want to say I'm so happy that you just ranked the film however you want to rank it. That's what the show's all about. So please continue to do that and disregard everything else. Um, uh, <clears throat> yeah, a little context. Ingi Bingi wasn't really a big director before this film. This is the one that put him on the map. This one followed by Wild Strawberries. Both came out in the same year, 57. Both of them putting them on the map. Wild Strawberries, interestingly enough, is something that is a part of this film as well. If you guys remember, in the field, they, they, they just sort of look almost like a church ceremony that goes on a little, a little peace offering between um, Von Snyder and, and Mary and Joseph. And she offers him a bowl of milk and a bowl of wild strawberries. Not too dissimilar from uh, maybe the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. Uh, but we will we'll get there. Uh, um, so, so this is really the film that put uh, Ingmar on the map. And um, I want to ask you, Paul, about the play it was based off of, because from what I understood, it was based off of his original conception for the film came from the frescoes in the Swedish churches, mm -hmm. uh, and particularly one of the frescoes that he would always see growing up as a kid, because his father was a minister, by the way, mm -hmm. um, and so these little scenes where he sort of uh, illustrates the, these self-flatuating um, people who were like punishing themselves um, because they, they believe that this black plague um, is essentially God you know speaking to them I'm saying that they're they they are ungrateful or, or or what have you they have to punish themselves um in order to try and 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 change their fate. Um so a lot of that 
self-fluctuation stuff comes from his childhood because his father was a, a very mean individual who would lock him up in cupboards um, where little things would crawl around and bite him in the feet. So he grew up very much under a church eye that was one of rather than purity, it was one of like teaching you to, to like you know punishment, punishment, judgment, judgment. Um, you know, feel bad about everything you're doing kind of thing. Uh, um, so from my understanding, he, he was inspired by one of these frescoes that is famous in Sweden and that is literally a skeleton death playing chess with the knight. Which then inspired him to write a play, uh, um, and then from that make the movie. So is that play the one you're referencing? Did he put on the play? Right. So you can find it on YouTube for those that have any interest. It's directed by him. Good question. I don't directed by I, the actor who played Death. That, that's what it was. That's a fantastic right? But is it written yes. by Ingmar? I think it was produced by, by him. Well, he, he wrote, he did write a play, the, 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 the Malning, which you can find on YouTube. About a forty-nine minute, um, and I, I don't even know if there were end credits. I probably just assumed it was Ingmar. Ingmar wrote it, and, and uh, I assumed he directed it. But I, you're right, Chris. He did not direct it. Um, so that part I don't know. But I do know it was inspired, and that's where I almost was not on board with the movie because the the scene with the uh, um, the artist in the church, the painter, and 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 Jan, uh, I thought I thought. What's going on there? I, I I thought because when you watch Tramalni, of course it's a play and it's directed like a play and it's heavy like a play. And I was because I watched maybe the first ten minutes before I watched the the rest of it, and I, I thought, oh. Tone is very heavy, very 
stage heavy. It's very Shakespearean. And you this is something you see at the, the old globe. And then you get to that scene in the movie, and it's, it's very, very light. And it's and just the, the exchange that you two of them have to your point, Yoshi. It's brilliant. I'm like, like the writing is unbelievable. Oh, it's great. I, it was like, I, I would think I screen captured three other backgrounds would probably find its way up here. Um, because I said, this is, this is great. Um, I mean, even the small stuff, like your ass is always behind you. All these, like, the, the film is filled with little witty. There's lots of comedy in the film, actually. Yes. Mm-hmm. People think of the seventh. Seal is this very dour, very depressive mm-hmm. film. But there's tons of comedy that balances that out. Um, I want to. There's so much to cover, so uh, and I want to get into very briefly the historical context with Chris. Mm-hmm. Just to create some context for the audience. Yep. But first, I'd be remiss if I didn't go around and just get. Uh, we already got Paul clearly, but I, I want to just get a, a quick, brief uh, uh, idea of what everyone's experience was and their taste in the film. And I'll start by just saying. Again, being Marbury, my favorite director of all time. Um, what's so different about him with everyone else is he is the full package for me. Because he writes everything and he directs and well, obviously. But his writing is, is massive for me like every single moment of his writing is, is so flushed out he's like a, a really good writer his choice of music his cinematographers he works with and the shots that he's able to develop the lighting um, and and most importantly, which for me as an actor is, is like, this is very, very important for me to be able to enjoy a film, is just performance of actors. It's like Ingmar Bergman, unlike a Tarkovsky, for example, which is why Tarkovsky, though I adore him, isn't quite on the level of Bergman for me. Bergman, first of all, he comes from the theater, so he has great reverence for 
actors, and he his, he has a team of actors who trust him, and he uses most of them in almost all of his films. But he is able to get performances out of his actors in every single one of his films that make his films come to life. And there's lots of examples of actors in his films who he's only worked with a couple times who are so good in those two films, those one or two films, and then don't have a career outside of that, which is just proof that when Bergman's working with you, he has a capacity to speak to your soul and 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 use you really for his for his image. So, um, Seven Seals was the very first Bergman film I ever saw. It started me on my Bergman journey, uh, um, and that was a long time ago now, but. So happy to revisit it, and I got to revisit it with a commentary on, which was a blessing because I've already seen the film a couple times. So now I get to watch it with a commentary on, which was a film scholar. I forget his name, um, but I learned so much just about the production of the film. Through that, so that was an, an, an amazing experience. And I watched it on this massive TV that we got in this hotel. So, so man, it, it was great. But Ingmar Bergman, as far as I'm concerned, is the greatest filmmaker of all time. He has an understanding storytelling that very few have had before him and I don't think anyone has had it since um, so yeah that's my experience Aaron you um, came into this film how are you feeling and, and, and just give me an overview of your taste going through it okay um yeah i mean i i enjoyed this film i didn't come into it with any preconceived notions i was very open to whatever this may be um, like did you have any idea what it was about no, no idea no i literally i just sat down and you guys said the seventh seal and i was like all right sat down put it on and just you know strapped in and uh i'm a chess player so the fact that we open up with, with the light, dark, dark mm. you know, death, death um, 
chest. Yeah. I mean, it was, yeah. I, I had flashes of loss, and I was like, I am sure that they are an Ingmar Bergman fan because that was just directly stolen from me, you know. Um, and yeah, I mean, my experience with the, the film was great. It, it was um, um, profound. I, I I feel like I need to see it again. It was hard to digest, you know. Um, there was so much packed in there that a lot, a lot of it was like what it was like I was trying to digest what just happened and now we're on to like another revelation and, and you know there are parts it's so overwhelming you're right it's so overwhelming I was one the notes I wrote down was, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but no, no, please. One of the notes I wrote down was like, you could talk more about one scene from a Bergman film than you can from most of the films we we cover on the show. So, like, like one scene in a Bergman film is so compact with so many ideas that you have to like watch it well we actually do have the subtitle song because it's Swedish but thankfully we do because I think it would even go even more over our head if we didn't but you have to like really like study those words and think about what the scene is about, and it's it's not easy to do because, like you said, it's just one idea after the other, over and over and over again. Yeah, and I think that that is where I also have a lapse in understanding. No, it is uh, a lot of reading, and I'm tr trying to dissect the image as well. Uh, right. It's multiple layers going on when you don't speak Swedish, and and I just I need to see the film again, and you know so. I knew it was a, a you know, I, I gave it, what, an 8.4. I knew it was in the 8s for me. Um, um, but, you know, perhaps after viewing it again, and it comes into the 9 because I can, like, oh, I can fully take in aspects that I was just 
behind, like trying to focus. Yeah. So it would be interesting to go back and turn the subtitles off and watch the film and just concentrate on the imagery. Yeah, I'd like to do that as well because sometimes with these films, you know, I'm I'm stuck looking at the bottom of the screen and somebody like Ingmar, I mean, I I want to see these frames. I want to see these open fields and how he's painting bright white light on faces, you know, and we have beams coming through the the back uh, the the backgrounds, you know, in certain angles that just bring faces to the forefront of the screen. I mean, it's I uh, uh you know as far as framing goes, I mean this is definitely a master class in how to make uh, a face come to life and really get into the soul of somebody's eyes and you know I mean just the lighting he does. Is on. What was that lead actor's name again? Max. Max the the oh, white yeah. hair. Yeah. The way he's able to capture that, that man in, in other films as well, but the way he's able to capture him with light is so fascinating. I mean, he, he almost looks like, like an angel. He did this film for under $150,000. And only three of the scenes were on location. The rest was in a little studio lot. Wow, a lot, like a, like, like a, a little parking lot. <laughs> well, um, yeah, it's insane how he was able to convince us that this was the Middle Ages with that little amount of money, and yeah, I'm sure you. Can Watch uh, other films from that time period, from that time period of filmmaking about that time period, the Middle Ages, with enormous budgets that weren't even able to come close to convincing you that you were there. Chris, a little historical context. 
text up with the Black Plague and the Crusades. Yes. So in in this time period, uh, and it's kind of vague, so I'll just keep it to the most of the Middle Ages. After the Crusaders came back, there was this big threat of the Black Plague. And so you had these people, and we got this demonstrated actually through the character of Jans, who were so just done with everything about the church, about Christendom, of just like they had seen the horrors they had done, they had done so much terrible shit all in the name of God, and then you come back after winning this great war, or, or you know, defeating this great, great enemy, and God essentially tells you, like, go fuck yourself, here's a play, like, it, it was a very bleak and existential time, and this again to pull from the Wikipedia article that I did read, I did read the original article. Like there are many European medieval scholars who said this is a great like a, a great aspect into what a normal person would be experiencing at this time. Time. You think God hates you, and so like you have one or two choices. Essentially, what the monks said is like you can either kill yourself right now and get it over with, or you can dedicate the rest of your life to you know punishing yourself as God is intended. So it's this. Really strange existential crisis, and I, 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 I'll, I'll get into this a little bit more. But like, I, I think this movie it, it definitely benefits from what I think is the hallmark of a great story, and it is the ability to talk about what the story is in a sentence. Because you, I could ask you, what is this movie about? And you can give me this long discussion about this medieval night and this, you know, this game with death. But what is it really about in one sentence? Sentence. And I've distilled okay, down to this. Let's do that. Oh, well, yeah. Let's Go do that. Chris. No, Chris, you tell us first, and we'll, we'll, we'll give our, 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 our version of it. This is a man coming to terms with dying. <laughs> 
That's it. He literally goes through the process of grief, goes through the process of accepting his religiosity, and goes through the process of his helplessness in the face of great evil. It is a man facing death. Um, Aaron? Man, that was pretty pretty close to what I was going to say. Uh, um, I will rephrase it and say this is this is oh, man yeah Chris now Chris's words are ringing in my ears um, this is this is finding comfort in in, in death this is this is going through the struggle and the fear of dying and realizing it, it's not as scary as you thought it might be that would be my sentence <laughs> Paul, do you have one? Yeah. I would just say man's relationship with life and his relationship with death. And, and I would end there because I think that that's what elevated this movie for me is that the the conversation with death you know, didn't didn't dominate this movie. It, it was wonderful because as you're viewing this, I was wondering, well, there's this specter of death. When will death? Oh, that's when death appears. Then you could have an entire scene unfold in a village where actors are performing and in the moment playing music and entertaining the masses. And in that moment, it is cut short by passion parade and you have, have someone out in the bushes because in my moment of life I want to enjoy all, all the fleshly desires that I have and it was just it, you, it's all been said. I mean, 
it's really the relationship with life and the relationship with death. And the mere fact that while you're alive, you can have a conversation with death, to me, is absolutely fascinating. It, it is akin to uh, the, the, the book that Anne Rice wrote about uh, uh, the conversation with the devil. Mem not the devil. It was the same. It was the, almost the same experience as I had watching the movie and reading that novel. I have, I have two um, separate ones, and, and I'd like to try to unpack the both of them with you guys. My first one would be something along the lines of no matter what character you choose to play and no matter where you stand as a person death unites all. Yep. That's sort of the death dance at the end there. It's kind of what that represents to me. And you have all the different archetypes of characters in this film, of different ways you can go about living life. Particularly, I think the focus would be between the hedonistic squire and the, the idealistic knight. And I think that Bergman is that's really the crux of what he was exploring here was he was he was maybe battling between those two characters within himself which I actually with I think a lot of us always battle within those two characters of like Going about life as an idealist, like the night is, and like looking for for meaning and and believing in meaning, but questioning things and and but still believing that there must be some some good or 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 the squire who sort of scoffs at all of that and says like that's kind of a waste of time. I mean look around it's the fucking plague. So you, you might as well enjoy life and, and you know, be with women and and just and live a pleasurable life because what's the point? I mean, if there's a God, you really think He's going to send a dark uh, a plague on us and kill us all? And I think that's kind of what Bergman was battling with all 
all these years later in the, in the 50s of how to live his own life. And he's notoriously a hedonist, so I think he probably decided with the squire um, um, with how he lived his life. The squire is just in my opinion. Yes. Well, the, the squire was the main character in the play. Um, and the knight was brought up just for the film. Hmm. So that, that makes sense. That the, and and I, I agree. I think, I think the squire, if I, I was to pick one character that really stood out to me, he was probably the squire. He, he, he had the witty lines and um and, and he was very wise too you know but but I'm not surprised you picked the squire and I think that maybe Aaron would pick the knight and you know maybe I could kind of go back and forth between them and you know it's, it's just interesting to see these archetypes so so well flushed out by by Bergman just him dealing with his internal struggles and putting them into characters about how to approach to this life when you know that death is coming like do you take it seriously do you really take it seriously, or do you just say, fuck it, I'm going to be a jester, I'm going to be a clown, you know, it's, it's like, uh, um, so, so that was, that's my, and then of course, that, that final shot is them on the hill, like, the death is, like, leading them, uh, um, so, so that would be my first one and then the second one would be something along the lines of like what is the remedy to death or 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 like or, or like what do you what do you like what's the only like what could be the only remedy in the face of death so that you die happy or whatever and I think it would be something along the lines of selflessness because that's really what the knight chooses to do right like he chooses to pretend to knock those chests uh, uh, pieces over just to distract death. Death is like, oh, I, I know what you're doing. You just, you know, you're going to lose. So you're trying to mess it up. But I remember where all the pieces were. So I've got you. But really, the knight has death. 
because the night saved the life of Mary and Joseph. Coincidentally, the names of Jesus's parents. Well, um, they were, um, it's the Swedish equivalent. It's Mia and Yoff. Right, but that's yeah, Mary and Joseph, right? Yeah. Yep. So, so he saves Mary and Joseph so that they can t take little Jesus off into safety. Hieronymus. Uh, Hieronymus. So he, so his final act in life is to commit a selfless act to distract death, and and, and he, because the thing is, he he might just still been able to win the game. Maybe I don't know. He might have still been able to win the game. He probably would have lost either way. It was looking bad. For for him, but he decided to do that, knock the pieces over, distract death, they get away. So, is that salvation? Is that salvation for the night? You know? Yeah, it's yeah. interesting because the, the Night comes back from, you know, the Crusades, and perhaps uh, we know the squire had, had an opinion about that. that um, but his, the night's focus was um, my role here, and is God here because I. I need to. I need to find God, and just he that talk to the devil too. He yeah. just, he's looking for anything. And any, and yeah, yeah. It's great. yeah. That, that whole exchange because it's like that to me it's because to actually do that but of course came up with the witch right what do you see they can't look into my eyes and we're waiting as a viewer and i'm okay <laughs> what's so sad is i'm waiting for the cocktail moment or some sort of seminal historical technological achievement where I go inside it, but it's, it's there's nothing and he's wondering well what what am I to do and it's like well you're you're you imagine what you've done is you have gone to battle to save the word of the Lord. 
offered or, you know, you know again, I think, I think the church always looked at the crusades like, well, you're, you all are going to battle on our behalf. That puts you a couple of rungs above everyone else. So feel really good about that. And then to the point we already made, oh, you're back, back home. Oh, we have, we have this perversion for you. It's called the plague. Okay, okay this is gonna. This will take you for sure. Oh, thanks for your service. Bye bye. And we have a contemplative knight who is asking questions that probably we would all be asking. And we, that for me has hasn't been successfully captured. But I think in a movie, because I'm thinking about it, it's on the, I'm on the spot of like, like man's relationship with God and life as successful as it was, as it was here. And I thought, wow, especially at a critical time, at a critical time. When, when it was the, the church saying you must go to battle for us um, we have to stamp out heresy we've got to get rid of this paganism and you're like thinking about cultures today that were founded on paganism and, and founded on these influences and maybe are still alive today. Arguably, Christianity is doing the same thing. Exactly. He says it. You know, we it's we see that contorted face of Christ, and I'm thinking. He's, is he making fun of his own? Yes. Like, we. It's. It was hilarious. That, that it was that hilarious. Of it was, was hilarious. That's exactly what it was a comedic moment. It was like. We're like. Wait, did my. I, I don't have somebody. I don't have somebody. In the movie theater with me to laugh with me, so I'm like, I'm puzzled. Like, well, that's a funny moment. Did he mean that? But yeah, I guess, I guess he did. Yeah, flush that out a little bit for me, Chris. Well, what do you mean? Which one? Well, you know, just how you're just reacting to what Paul was saying. Oh, oh. I was thinking of the scene with with a girl. Uh, uh, specifically, the scene when he 
when he talks to her, he's like, I, I'm, I'm looking for a, a reason. I'm looking for knowledge. I, I take, I take pretty good care about what the, you know, intro clips are, are, are about. Well, it's either something that you know encapsulates the feeling of the movie, or question I want to talk about. This this scene that I I put together is him wrestling with like I do want to die, but like I just want to know like it was all worth it. Like he's not concerned with living forever or cheating death. He just wants to make his death meaningful. And so he goes to her and is like, well, maybe the devil has something for me to say. Like, did you talk to him? And she's like, yes. And, she's like, and he realizes that this kid doesn't know shit. She's just scared. And, like, he recognizes the situation of, like, oh, they're gonna kill her. They're gonna make her suffer because they want something to believe in because like in her eyes, there's nothingness for me in this moment. And this is kind of the dark night of the soul moment if those of us who screenwriters have just like he's this lowest love. It's like, well, even the devil doesn't exist. It's like, what the fuck? So what does he do? He does the, the Christian thing, honestly. And he poisons her to let her have an easy death. And yeah, she, she collapses and dies on the rack before they burn her. That's the whole thing. Is she realizes what he's done. And that's when Yon impresses him. He's like, what do you see right there? Not, not you know, pearly gates. It's not just nothingness. Fear. That's what the that's what the afterlife is, and that, that solidifies John's opinion of, of 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 the entire discussion of the movie. Jan doesn't give a fuck. Jan's the squire, by the way. Um, he's like, yeah, that's that's what I see every time when I stuff out the life of a heretic. That's why I see when I, I try to hold somebody as they're dying. That is what she's seeing right now. What do you believe? Hmm. And he chooses he chooses to save those people. He could have left them to die because for all he knows, uh, you know, Mary and Joseph 
Joseph. Joseph is a philanderer. Mary is a person who cheats on her husband, and they have a child out of wedlock. Like, they're not good Christian people by the, the monotonous of the times. But, like, he sees the good in them. He sees that they are good people, that they are people who deserve to be saved. And he chooses to do that. And he chooses that with the communion moment. The kind of last supper as you've already so masterfully pointed out. I will savor this moment. These strawberries, the cream in my mouth as I take it in. Kind of a passion of the Christ moment where he's like, yeah, you know, I, you're gonna, I'm gonna die. You're gonna probably get away. All these people are gonna die with me. But you know what? It's worth it. So he, but in the end, he still bargains. He still questions God. Like, where are you? Like, what am I supposed to do? Because he's still holding on to that. The person who has the most transformative experience in the entire movie for me is the beautiful girl. Go on. She almost gets raped. And then this guy's like, I'm kind of done with rape. You can come with us if you want. I guess <laughs> I'm only raping you because I'm not, only not raping you because I'm tired. That kind of shit. And she's like, what the fuck? So she goes along with these people. And then when faced with death, when other people are saying, why bargain? Or when people are bargaining, or she just says, it's over. She looks down in the face and smiles. And before that, when the rapist guy comes back, yep. she wants to save him with water. She wants to help yep. him with water. And so, and so, She's, she doesn't speak, you know, she's not just saying words, just say words. She tries to help the man who tried to rape her. And then when death comes, she accepts it with arms wide open without questioning anything. And is that to say? Hey, is that Bergman saying that that's what God wants from you? That's the, the idea. 
ideal response, which is why she's not included in the death dance at the end, because uh, in the comments area, I learned that she's actually not on that hill. For whatever reason, she's not on the hill, and the wife of the, of the knight's not there, and everyone else is there. Well, there's, there's a historical context for that. The church at the time of this, you did not go to heaven if you died. Even if you were a good person, most people went to purgatory, where you had to work out even this tiniest of sins. So she, she dies without sin. Is why she goes to heaven. She goes straight to heaven. That's why she goes straight to heaven. Because she kept. Yeah. So all of these, all these people who dance with death, are in purgatory. So, so even that's the, the genius of Bergman is even for a man who doesn't know what his own beliefs are, who doesn't believe in an afterlife, who, who, who is more, more like the hedonist squire, still posits these characters within his films who, who, who are saved by God. Who, you know, he's Still, he still puts all the elements out there, which makes me think that really deep down, he he does believe. I mean, he he must to a degree. I mean, half of his fucking films are about this very nature. But um, I want to bring it back to the witch real quickly because. The, the, that whole thing with the plague is really intriguing to me of just how you know the plague resulted in in everyone well first of all how crazy is it that the crusades you're asking people to fight in the name of God and the church at a time where the plague is happening. So, how is there, has there ever been a more hard time to have faith where you have a plague killing? a third of the people and you have all this war and bloodshed happening. Imagine being around at that time. Just being like where the f like that's like being in hell basically. How can you believe in God in, in that place? It's like I think that's the question maybe being 
best. Like how much how strong do you have to be to even at that point believe in God? That's why you have in the um uh, what do you call it? The, the uh, um, the perception when the people are walking by, they're they're self-flagellating and, and punishing themselves. It's like these these moments lead to extreme reactions of people just trying to fit figure out what the fuck is going on. And then it gets to the point where like the plague basically leads to everyone turning on one another. So like death advances, the humans turn to accusing one another for their misery. And, you know, during that kind of a time, superstition is rife. And everyone believes in the devil. People would condemn one person in the village so that everyone else in the village would be free. And it makes you kind of think a little bit about COVID. In the sense that when shit starts hitting the fan, oh, yeah. is it coincidental that everyone starts turning on each other and accusing each other of things and looking for answers by 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 trying to do you know blame certain people for for their misery? Absolutely. I mean, you saw the mob mentality comes to life over a meal. Um, you saw the, the uh, actor made light of. Um, it, it just uh, uh, what might happen if you're infected. Um, yeah, because I mean, the pizza, I guess I left out, you know, we get into um, the crusades, you know, think about, about uh, uh, again, and think about the hysteria of where we think COVID originated uh, and, and the feelings that we had towards that, that part of the world, and, and it still have, still have, right? Uh, very noteworthy because the piece obviously we talked about, you know, heresy and paganism, the piece that obviously dominated uh, the Crusades was Islamic law, or the threat of Islamic 
on what was going on and you know i studied spanish so i remember like it goes like oh yeah, yeah, yeah the, you know, the moors were going to take over spain we don't want that you know islamic influence here so, so we better get rid of that okay let's let's go fight those guys and, and i mean that, that even works today where we think you know we i mean short of planes flying in the building there, there was a time when we thought oh we have to get rid of anything that is related to the middle east i, I, I cycled through two of the, those crusades and you know that i'm sure uh, you know, we could talk for hours about um, but i think that you know to bring it back to what uh, inky does he captures it in these beautiful moments characters are richly portrayed they have very timely dialogue and it makes us think and have conversations just like this and he does that in, in scenes and moments and framing and it's just like oh oh yes i can relate to all of this um it's why yeah why i burn her at night people need the diversion yeah oh such it's great oh. like i couldn't even capture that screen fast enough I was like i have to pause I have to go so good. yeah <laughs> just such such a Oh, what, uh, what, yeah, what was it? And then the thing about the fucking his wife, it's just it's like, yeah, why don't she just kill both of them? It doesn't make sense to leave her her alive. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, so is is the baby like the second coming of Jesus because uh, the, the movie opens with you know a quote from the seven seals from Revelation for anyone who doesn't know Revelation yep. the apocalyptic uh, prophecy of the Bible the last part of the Bible uh, and the very last Last part of, of of the revelations is is the seventh seal, um, which is what this movie is called, obviously. Um, but I'm not too well read on revelations. But I, I, correct me if I'm wrong. It's the idea. It's like the, the, it's the Apocalypse leading up to the second coming of Christ. 
Christ. And, and so my question is, is why did he have those two characters named Mary and Joseph with a little baby who Antonio and oh, what's his name? Antonio Block. Antonio Block. And you've been talking uh, about self flatulation or self flagellation? Just make sure it's on the soundboard. Because self flagellation means you just farting. Self flagellation is hitting yourself. Which one was I saying? With the farting one. one. <laughs> <laughs> this whole time I was like, just telling people to fart on themselves. It's going to the sound. That's all we can You know, when you don't know what God's doing, you just gotta start farting on yourself. Um, but yeah, so was that to say that Bergman's like saying that he, you know, in order for the second coming of Christ to be possible, then there needs to be humanity shown on a selfless level in, in the face of death, kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Because what is that all about? Why Mary and Joseph and a little baby. I I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it it, it is a, a witness, and they even recite it right before the movie ends. It's, you know, the 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 Leviathan will come, the rivers will turn red with blood. Um, it, it is. Is, I mean, it, it, it is the, the the end of the world in in their mind uh, when it comes to the plague and then you know death arrives. He takes he takes the non-believers in the centers and Christ comes and takes everyone. You know, rises into the kingdom of heaven. I've read Revelation a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, Antonio's blog does have that kind of cool moment. I don't know how you guys. But it's it's right after he speaks to death when he thinks he's the priest that he's admitting his sins to, and he looks at his hand and he just kind of like admires his hand, and then he has that moment, and it's it's like 
in a moment of, I don't know, a moment of like embracing the absurdity or the embracing the illusion and just cherishing that he is in a game with death. But it, it might be just be like a moment and he had, you know, like just how we all have moments where it's like, oh, yeah, like, we're all going to die, but this is fucking awesome. I like the way the sun feels on my, on my, my face. But that moment really stood out to me. I, I'm not too sure what, what it meant, but it was like right after talking with Death, he was like, I like playing chess with Death. This, this is great. Yeah, Aaron, how's it going? <laughs> Hey, what's up? <laughs> yeah, let me jump in here. Uh, is there... I, I thought the uh, death scene was very believable. The one that he, he like, like stabs his heart. Uh-huh. Yeah, oh. I, I don't know the character's name. Yeah. The, the guy that yeah, cheated like, on uh, that guy's wife. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, one of the yeah. actors. Uh, was the husband. That death scene, yep. I thought he killed himself. I was like, wow, that was incredible. <laughs> <laughs> that was really bad. I think you believe that. It's kinda I believed it. I was like, like that was terrific. And then he like pops up after he died. And then he's like, Oh, I'm gonna go hide in the the uh, the tree and then death was like, No 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 no. You actually died. You actually died. And then he cuts the tree down. What does that mean? Is it just like a symbolism of like you think you can escape death, but you you just you planned out your own death, I guess? I don't know. Heretics and the liars shall be among the first to bleed. So he, he lied about his death. That's why I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to kill you. Cause... Hmm? Well, he actually physically takes his mask off after that, too. You know, he like takes his beard off. Off, and then he kind of like powers up like a coward in the tree. Is that your? That's, is that, that's it right there. Paul's background. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I'll I'll for 
actors. And yeah, like that's not yeah. even like no exemption for actors. <laughs> A long time. What? It's just uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, what about my family? And death's like, are you serious? Come I got a family. Get down here. Get off of that tree. <laughs> yeah, that's the great part of the performance of death, too. He's very matter of fact. Like, he's just working. He just has a job to do. He's just, he's not like, his performance isn't like he's not tr trying to lean into like being evil or anything. He's just like replying to everyone. And he's like, "Are you good? Like, like I gotta kill you now." I'm like, "I'm sorry, bro." No emotions to right. It's the nature. Right, it's the nature yeah. of yeah. life. By the way, when that tree fell and the squirrel comes up, not planned. That was just what? that was so great. Wow! Yeah, just the Um, do we have to talk about holy motors? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like we can go on for another hour on this film, but uh, we we obviously gotta stop at some point. So, um, Aaron and I know you didn't get. Much, much, much time on that. So let me just ask you this. Uh, yeah, let's dig deep. Let's go. What? Uh, which? Which character was most appealing to you? Uh, uh, um. Both life and, and death. I thought that was the most profound relationship. Um, I, I, I really enjoyed the both well, both the night and death. I. I said life and death, but that's funny because it's the night and death. And, and uh, it was very, very, very interesting that he was confessing to death, you know. No. All these things, all these 
all these all these uh, uh, thoughts he had. What is it all about? You know. Um. um so well, you guys are right. I, I definitely uh, felt connected to the the night character where it was like I, I want. I want some selfless act. I want to feel like I did something here, you know. Um, yeah, so if that, that answers your, your your question there, um, I I appreciate you know this this whole movie was it was very hard. For me to digest. So even in our podcast, I actually am taking in a lot of what you guys are saying, and it's an it's affecting me in a significant way. Where when I go revisit this film, which I will, because I actually. Really enjoyed this film. This wasn't a film that just like pushed me away, and I was like, oh, I just can't do the content. No, no, no. I actually really enjoyed the pacing and everything, but now I want to look into it even deeper. And you guys have opened up my perspective to that. Um, so I've been a bit of a viewer on this particular movie, um, but it's helped me tremendously. So thank you guys for dissecting it the way you have. Um. Another scene that just came to mind, and we'll wrap it up, is uh, how the uh, that guy in the tree, whatever his name was, earlier on when he was with the troop, um, with the actor and his wife, uh, um, or girl. And he puts the skull mask on, and then he looks straight at us and delivers that monologue, and then takes it off. And then before he goes away, he puts it on that like stick. And then every time we go back to that location. No matter what's happening in the foreground, kind of the background, you just have that skull just like watching over them. And there's like that scene in particular where they're like, like the two, the couple just having fun and they're in love and they're singing and, and just having a good time. And in the background, 
Seth is just watching them. And that was just like for me, it evoked an emotion of like. I don't know. I can't even put it into words, but it's like even in, in the moments where we're enjoying ourselves in life, like, like I wonder if there's a part of us that's in the deep, deep, deep back of our skulls that's like, yeah, but what's the point of all this? Because you're going to die. That's very human for you right there. He's able to paint, paint, paint that, those kinds of pictures. Yeah, I'm marks with any of you. Uh, the women were uniformly good. Uh, if you do want to watch a very naturalistic performance, B.B. Anderson, who plays uh, Mia, she is so watchable in every frame. I couldn't take my eyes off for just beaming beauty. She is someone she was on she was on the Inky Bingy, that's why. She was on the Inky Bingy. Literally on the Inky Bingy. It's just like the lines were coming off as if like they were so fresh and natural it was just a joy to listen to her and watch her on screen uh, but she's like the perfect she's like the perfect blonde yeah uh, and 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 Bergman Bergman's muse for like they were they were sleeping together. He was making every movie with her for for, for years. Bergman is another guy who's like obsessed with blondes, like Hitchcock too. Like Hitchcock makes the, the perfect blonde. Bergman makes the perfect blonde. Like he's archetypical blondes. I think the difference though is that Bergman's blondes are accessible whereas Hitchcock feel distant. Yeah. I will get into Hitchcock at some point. But yeah, I wouldn't disagree. I think uh, yeah that would be very fascinated. I think something we maybe commented on in this show, but deeper into Aaron's uh, matriculation in college, he's getting to vertigo, I think at some point, it would be fascinating to see if you really like it. 
that's it's interesting that you bring that point up, Yoshi, because you jumping tracks a little bit and how a character takes a brunette and transforms her into a blonde and how we are all, all led to believe that blondes perhaps are more beautiful beyond whatever blondes having more fun in that moment. I think is just a wonderful beautiful takeaway because the Kim Novak as the brunette, the sales girl, is so captivating in that movie and so innocent and then she gets transformed into the blonde and realizes it's like the game that I have admitted myself into is now backfiring, but I can't stop this. You know, um, and it's interesting because I find that one of the more compelling parts of the movie, where I think others are fascinated with the you know, towers and. Uh, I think you raise a really, really good point. That I think, yeah, I guess we're getting way off. I'm getting way off top because I, Aaron, on this, on this course, the, the Hitchcock path right now, and, and I think that there are elements of Hitchcock that were very derivative, and I think you, you know, the the fact that we're exalting Bergman, and I don't think it's it's not. I think it's right. <laughs> I think it's genius, and I think he had a rating and effect on a lot of people. Time, I don't care what anyone exactly. You're like, yeah, I'm sure people just lifted things. And went, man, those women in Sweden are so beautiful. Yeah, well, you know, they're blonde and wholesome looking. And, and a lot of them can perform in front of the cameras. So, so a 9.2 for the seventh seal from the society, and 9.9 from. Paul Jackson. I don't know. We might have just witnessed the highest ranking that this show will ever see. I don't. There's only one ranking above that, and I don't know if that's ever going to happen. So, well, holy motors. <laughs> Okay, cool. Well, uh, let's put this 
this one bad guys. That was a great conversation again. Like it's hard to have uh, you know, half an hour conversations about breaking films. I think our cries and whispers one was an hour as well. Well, it's like <laughs> there's a lot to unpack. Like Aaron was saying, like every scene is 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 a whole movie. So yeah. uh, let's put that to bed. Chris, uh, uh, do you, is your favorite movie coming up? 